The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And the guest that I have with me today has a fascinating role in interpreting international trade policy and how that affects our health. I welcome Sarah Clark. Welcome. Thank you. Sarah is a graduate student of International Trade and Food Policy at Tufts University in Boston. Before she went into this line of work, she worked with public health organizations and holds a degree in public health from the University of California in Berkeley. Now, I was intrigued to interview Sarah because a little report that came across my desk titled Public Health Cost of Global Corn Trade. And this was sent by a colleague of mine at the Institute of Ag and Trade Policy. And it came with a little note that said, interested? And I read it and I thought, indeed, I've got to find who wrote this article and I need to learn more. So, Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Sarah, you started out in public health. How on earth did you go from public health to international trade policy? (laughs) Good question. I think my parents asked the same thing. That, well, I, after I graduated with a degree in public health, I worked for a public health research firm for a number of years, and the research and evaluation firm focused on nutrition and obesity prevention policy. So that was my first entrance into the world of food and nutrition, and during my time there, I started thinking about agriculture and where our food comes from in the first place. Mm. And I was doing a lot of reading and doing a lot of exploration on my own, and that brought me to Tufts University, where I'm now studying uh, agricultural policy and also international affairs. So this particular report talked about the global corn trade, but the thing that really struck me was a case in 2003 claiming that the Mexican government put a tax on soft drinks that were sweetened specifically with high fructose corn syrup instead of sugar. And the claim was that because they taxed only those beverages sweetened with high fructose corn syrup, that they had discriminated against Corn Products International in order to protect Mexican cane sugar producers. And as a result then, Mexico had to pay a fine. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Under, and we can talk more about this in a little bit, but under new rules, new investment rules, under NAFTA, corporations and individuals in the United States and in Mexico have the right to sue the governments of the U.S., Mexico, or Canada if actions taken by those governments impede present or future profits of those companies. 
So this case with Corn Products International, which is a U.S.-based company, is really fascinating and a great illustration of this new experience we're seeing in the world of international agricultural policy. So maybe we should back up and I should ask you what NAFTA is, because really, I think international trade is quite complicated, at least for me to understand, and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I ever really fully grasped what NAFTA did in terms of how that created a level or an uneven trading field for the three countries involved. Sure. So NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement, and it's an international treaty that was signed between the United States, Canada, and Mexico back in 1994. Mm -hmm. And when implementation of NAFTA began in 1994, what it did was essentially eliminate all of the barriers to trade Mm -hmm. between the three countries. So over the 14-year NAFTA implementation period, 1994 to 2008, Mm -hmm. we've seen a steady increase in the flow of goods and services between the three countries. The other thing that's really important about NAFTA is that this international treaty granted favorable investment laws or investment policies for international corporations and for international investors. And that was a unique aspect of NAFTA beyond what other international trade agreements have done. So how did they do that? It was a moment of, I think, really fascinating and innovative trade policy writing where they wrote a chapter in the NAFTA policy called Chapter 11. And Chapter 11 is, as I mentioned earlier, it's a a section which enables corporations or individuals to sue the governments of the United States, Mexico, or Canada when they believe an action taken by that government has impeded their profits. Before NAFTA, a company like Corn Products International would not have been able to bring a suit against the government of Mexico. So did Mexico want to institute the tax on soft drinks, I'm assuming, not because they were concerned about obesity, but they wanted to have an edge on their sugar-sweetened soft drinks rather than the corn-sweetened ones. Is that right? Right. They Mexico wished to protect the domestic Mexican sugar producers, and they saw a good way of doing this uh, would be to prevent the flood of U.S. corn products and sugar products into their country. Interesting. You know, I had been to Mexico, oh, within the last year, and I remember learning something that quite startled me. We were in a region of Mexico where one of the farmers who was meeting with us said that they don't produce the corn that they consume anymore for their their citizens because Mm. the corn is coming in from the United States. And so they were Mm. looking at alternative crops that they could grow to make a living. But it troubled me because corn is such a a vital component of the Mexican diet. Are you aware of anything like that and how that came about? Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, As you mentioned, corn is a Exactly as you say, a very important part of the Mexican diet. And it's very interesting that when NAFTA was implemented, 
the Mexican government had an option to implement a steady phase-in of U.S. corn, but for one reason or another, they chose not to do that. I have no idea why. Uh (laughs) So beginning in the mid-'90s, we see this huge flood of American corn into the Mexican market. And for a number of reasons, American corn is cheaper. It's more affordable than Mexican corn. So we've seen a slow pushing out of Mexican corn production, unfortunately to the detriment of a lot of Mexican corn farmers. And the detriment to their culture because, you know, it seems to me that some of the corn varieties that are grown in Mexico are, my gosh, they've been grown for hundreds of years. They're, they're part mm-hmm. of the Mexican culture. And now we import probably, I'm going to guess, one kind of corn. There's two types of corn. There's white corn and yellow corn. Mm -hmm. White corn is generally used for human consumption, for tortillas and so forth. Uh, Yellow corn is used for animal feed. And we've seen drastic increases in the number, in the amount of imports of both white and yellow corn into Mexico. At the same time, though, just to be fair, certain products, certain agricultural products in Mexico have also been exported in greater and increasing amounts into the United States, in particular fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So we see a give and take both ways. But what I also read in another paper, and this is from a link that you had recommended, it's a working paper on agricultural dumping under NAFTA. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that While there are fruits and vegetables coming up from Mexico, and I'm assuming they were even before NAFTA, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. but the value is lopsided. So the cost or the price that the Mexicans are getting for their vegetables is less than what American farmers are gaining from bringing the corn in. Is that a correct assumption? Well, yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fair. The the key point behind that statement is that in the United States we subsidize our corn producers. Right. We also subsidize our soybean producers. So what's happening is that we're because we subsidize our corn and soybean farmers, we are creating an artificial price of corn and soybeans that is lower than what it would be on a normal competitive market. So you mentioned a paper about dumping. What dumping means is that because of these artificially low prices of American corn and soy products, when we export them to another country, we're essentially dumping them on that country. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's pushing out the the Mexican products. So the the Mexican government although their exports of fruits and vegetables into the United States has been increasing, Mm -hmm. I don't think that the Mexican government subsidizes or supports their farmers, whether it's on corn, um, sugar, fruits and vegetables, to nearly the same level that we support our farmers here. Mm -hmm. This is complicated. (laughs) So let's say the Mexican government decided, hey, wait a second, this is hurting our farmers. We don't want any more of your corn. Can they say that? 
They could say it, but then it's very likely... So the way the government of Mexico would do that is that they would set up some sort of trade barrier. They would implement a tariff or a quota on American corn in order to prevent the flooding of the Mexican market by American corn. The thing is, is that now under NAFTA, a trade barrier like that is illegal. So it would it would be challenged by the United States. Indeed. And probably Mexico would have to pay a steep fine then, if I'm understanding this correctly. Right, or they would have to op- they would just have to simply open their borders to the American products. So technically, actually, Mexico, though, could bring a case against the United States with regards to our subsidies on corn and soy. Why haven't they? I believe, I frankly, I believe it's all a matter of time. Mm-hmm. A very interesting legal precedence was set recently where Brazil successfully sued the government of the United States regarding the subsidies that we give to our cotton farmers. And they won the case. And the United States has to compensate Brazilian cotton farmers because we have been unfairly dumping our cotton into their market at a false artificial price. So there's this legal precedence that's now been set for the ability of Mexico to bring a case against the United States subsidies. And is there a special court that looks at these cases? There is. There's a NAFTA also set up a special tribunal that looks at these cases. Is it weighted more towards one country than another, or do you think it's a fair court system? I actually think it's a pretty fair court. It's modeled off of the tribunal uh, dispute settlement system Mm -hmm. from in the World Trade Organization. I see. And they do a really good job of having panelists on the tribunal that come from a variety that that represent the different countries and that also represent different areas of expertise. If you're just joining us, we are talking about NAFTA and food and public health with Sarah Clark. She's a graduate student at the present moment with the Tufts University's International Trade and Food Policy School. And before deciding to work on her master's in international trade and food policy. She got a degree in public health from the University of California in Berkeley. So now we're putting all these puzzle pieces together, and we're going to try to figure out how international trade policies actually affect the food on our plates. We've seen in Mexico now that it seems to me that Mexicans have lost some food sovereignty or the freedom to sweeten their beverages as they might prefer. But how does NAFTA affect the food that's on our plates here in the United States? NAFTA has opened up the import of more food products from Canada and Mexico. And so you may notice, as you shop in your grocery stores, more Mexican products. You also may or may not notice that the variety of fruits and vegetables offered in our grocery stores year-round has increased. And also the price of fruits and vegetables has decreased as we've been able to import them more and more from Mexico. In large part, I think actually the effect of NAFTA on the American consumer has been quite positive. Uh Uh-huh. But on the Mexican consumer, not so much. 
Right. It depends. It depends on how you look at it. The the positives of increased trade is that increased trade brings increased economic growth. It has the potential to reduce poverty, to create jobs. Increased trade of goods and services or food products between countries also can improve the public health of it, it has the potential of improving the health of Mexicans um, because they have access to more foods. But that's on one side. On the other side, there's potentially negative aspects of increased trade, especially if the types of products that we're exporting into Mexico are unhealthy products. Mm. And in the work that I've done, we've seen that there's been there's been a disproportionate representation of the types of foods that we're exporting into Mexico. We are exporting in increasing numbers um, processed foods hmm. and foods derived from cheap cheap grains. So they're high in sugar, high in fat. So have we seen an increase in obesity in Mexico since this NAFTA took place and there are more processed foods going across the border? Yes, absolutely. In recent work that I've been doing with an organization based in Minneapolis called the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, right? we've been looking at just that question. And what I've done is that I've mapped and looked at the change in the number and the type of products exported into Mexico over the last 30 years, and then parallel to that, tracked the change in obesity and overweight in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And without being able to speak to any kind of causality or right. link between the two, there's a very clear and fascinating correlation or coexistence of these two things. Mm-hmm. So a big question for me as I move forward is how much of the obesity epidemic in Mexico is really being caused by an increased integration or with the United States? Are we essentially exporting American obesity into Mexico? It's possible. It seems that way, doesn't it? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at countries that have taken on some of our fast food restaurants, I mean, certainly the work that you did looking at some of the Robert Wood Johnson data, Robert Wood Johnson, and perhaps you were involved in collecting some of this policy data, showed that where there are more fast food restaurants, there is no doubt more obesity. And we can say, well, there are more fast food restaurants in in lower income communities, but even I remember one study, very interesting study that Robert Wood Johnson published looking at the uh, connection between fast food restaurants located near public schools and the mm. rates of obesity within the school itself. So it seems to me that if we are introducing more of these highly processed, high-calorie foods into a population, that we're going to see more obesity. Yes, that's right, and I agree with that. And there's there's been a tremendous amount of work and research around that topic in the United States, mm-hmm. and we're just beginning to look at the effects of 
the I, a term that is used a lot is uh, the food environment and an unhealthy food environment. So the food environment in which we make our daily choices. There's a lot of work surrounding the unhealthy food environment in the United States and how that has contributed to our obesity epidemic here. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more work to be done understanding how the food environment is changing in developing and middle-income countries like Mexico and what effect that food environment is having on their health outcomes, their rates of overweight and obesity. Mm -hmm. The, The little piece of the puzzle that we're talking about today is how international trade agreements between the United States and Mexico have helped shape the food environment in Mexico. And unfortunately, I think what we've seen so far is that it hasn't been for the better. That's so unfortunate. You know, I was also intrigued by another component of this Chapter 11, and it had to do with a company that wanted to bring toxic waste to the Mexican state of San Luis Potosi. And this state refused to grant a permit to the U.S.-based Metalclad Corporation. And Metalclad wanted to operate a hazardous waste treatment facility and a landfill. And the Mexican state had also created an ecological preserve in that area. Mm-hmm. And Metalclad then sued through this NAFTA tribunal that Mexico couldn't say no. They were fined. million. That's right. So in addition to the poor foods that are going across the border, we're also wanting then to export our waste products. And, you know, it's very interesting if you look at some of the obesity data, it's not just about food. It's also about some of these endocrine-disrupting compounds. And I'm wondering how many of those are included in some of this toxic waste and if it isn't all connected. Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> it is, you're, it's sort of a grim picture that's being painted, isn't it? Well, it is, but I think that when people become aware, that, mm-hmm. and I'm going to ask you this next, of course, mm-hmm. is now that we're aware of these atrocities, what can we as American citizens do? Right. Our vote always counts, and our vote always makes a really big difference. And there... Uh, one very recent success in this area that I'd like to share is that we now have an advisor, a public health advisor, sitting on a public health trade advisory committee at the United States Trade Representative Office. Excellent. This is really great. This, her name is Lisa Cardi, and we now have a person who can speak to exactly these concerns about how trade is affecting health, and we can bring health into the conversations about international trade policy and the sorts of laws that we form. The U.S. trade policy is formulated on a federal level. So that means that connecting with our senators, letting our senators and our congresspeople know that we care about how trade is affecting the other people of the world, the folks with which we trade, is very important. And There's a really, I think, speaking to our representatives about there's two specific federal policies that also have an interesting impact on what we're talking about today. 
President Obama, and he mentioned this in his State of the Union address, has this national export initiative, which seeks to increase American exports to other countries over a certain time period. At the same time, the administration has an initiative called Feed the Future, which seeks to promote local agricultural production and focuses on building the productive capacity and the food sovereignty of local communities. So there's a clear, based on what we know about NAFTA, there's a clear conflict between these two policies. And whenever an opportunity arises, and when a new bill is passed or so on, we as Americans can speak up and let our senators know, hey, you've got to iron these out, and we need to pay more attention to health. So the specific organization, right, mm-hmm. that that can help us all get connected with these big-picture federal issues, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, the organization that I work for, They have a website called healthyfoodaction.org. It's excellent. They do a a really excellent job of bringing together all of these issues, not only related to trade, but also related to food and agriculture more broadly. And also there's an organization in California called the Center for Policy Analysis on Trade and Health. And their website is www.healthyfoodaction.org. CPATH.org, and they also have done a very excellent job in facilitating people having uh, connecting with their senators, advocating on the behalf of healthy food systems as it relates to trade. Well, I agree with you with regard to the Institute of Ag and Trade Policy, and I love the Healthy Food Action site because it not only shares wonderful research papers like yours, but it makes it understandable and then gives mm-hmm. me an action step, you know, ways that I can maybe make a difference after I understand the complexities of it all. <laughs> and I'm assuming that genetically modified crops and seeds are not limited in this transnational trade. Right. No, that's those genetically modified organisms are a very important and big part of our agricultural system uh-huh. in the United States. And so they've naturally been included in in the the products and the agricultural commodities that we export to Mexico. That is true. Well, I knew that our time would unfortunately fly by. There's so many more questions and issues to discuss, but I want to give you an opportunity to say anything that you would like to leave our listeners with. Great. Thank you so much. Well, it's been so exciting talking with you about this today. It's a subject very close to my heart, and I think very fascinating. And I I think that being aware of and studying international food trade is really fascinating because it's illustrative of all of the positive and negative effects of globalization. Mm -hmm. And studying international food trade really brings up challenging questions about what we value as Americans, what we value as a global community, and the sorts of choices that we need to make as we move forward about what we will preserve, what we will choose to preserve, and what we will change with regards to 
our food choices and what we eat. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for your work and for being my guest today. We've been speaking with Sarah Clark. She's a graduate student of International Trade and Food Policy at Tufts University, and she's been working with the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, specifically with the Healthy Food Action Center. And in closing, I want to thank not only Sarah, but I want to thank our listeners and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.